0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: Micah chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you also Aaron and Miriam my people remember what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord with what shall i come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted god shall i come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ephah which is the cursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights. Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. "'because what you save I will give to the sword. "'You will plant but not harvest. "'You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. "'You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. "'You have observed the statutes of Omri "'and all the practices of Ahab's house. "'You have followed their traditions. "'Therefore, I will give you over to ruin "'and your people to derision.' and you will bear the scorn of the nations. Please do take your seats.
0: And as you do, if you'd um, uh, get your Bible open again at page 934, Micah chapter 6, page 934, you may also like to find the handout that you will have received on the way in as well. Uh, We're going to be looking closely at those verses over the next few minutes, so having them open in front of you would be a good idea. Uh, Just as we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning in your word, would you show us your goodness and show us our guilt and then show us Christ, your Son and our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I love a good courtroom drama. They often make the most exciting and gripping scenes in films and TV programs. I think particularly of some of the great classic courtroom scenes uh, that we've seen in cinema and on the TV screens over the years. It's very old now, but one of the greats has to be To Kill a Mockingbird. Over 50 years old now, that film, but a great courtroom scene in there. Um, Another one, you might have watched um, A Few Good Men That's now 25 years old, but still a fantastic, gripping courtroom scene in there. Um, Or if you were watching uh, daytime TV during the 90s, I was doing hardly anything other than that. Um, Then Perry Mason, you can't have missed missed Perry Mason. Uh, Good old Perry. Um, Some great courtroom scenes there. And in all of these films and programs, the court scene is often the most exciting one because things begin unclear. The truth isn't fully seen, but then there comes a point in the trial uh, perhaps a new bit of evidence comes up, or a witness breaks under pressure and they reveal more than they meant to. And then suddenly all the lies begin to unravel and it becomes clear what's really going on. Uh, suddenly everything comes into focus. The truth is seen and known by all, and then there can be no questions about the rightness of the judge's verdict. Well, Micah chapter 6 is an old but gripping courtroom scene. God takes his people to court. And through this chapter, the truth becomes clear. It's laid out on the table for all to see. The truth about God, the truth about us, his people, and we're left unable to deny the rightness of his case against us. This chapter definitively puts God in the clear and exposes our wrongdoing. And the result is a verdict we cannot refute. In verse one, it begins with God speaking to Micah and telling him to begin this trial against his people. He says to Micah, verse one, "'Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. "'Let the hills hear what you have to say.'" And so in verse two, Micah does just that, saying, "'Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. "'Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, "'for the Lord has a case against his people. "'He is lodging a charge against Israel.'" Micah calls in the mountains as witnesses in this courtroom scene because they're the only ones old enough to remember the events that are about to be described. That's because the Lord, through Micah, is about to show us that he has over hundreds, hundreds of years been faithful to his people by keeping his covenant with them. Through the grand sweep of Israel's national history, from Egypt to the Promised Land, we see a covenant kept by the Lord. That's point one on the handout. A covenant kept by the Lord. Now, it's helpful just at this point to pause to be clear about what a covenant is. Uh, The pastor and author, Tim Keller, describes a covenant like this. Again, it's on your handout. A covenant is a bond of love made more intimate and solid because it is legal. Uh, An important part of understanding what a covenant is is understanding what it is not. It is not a contract. Keller writes, it is a relationship much more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract could create, yet one more enduring and binding than personal affection alone could make. You could think of it like this. A a contract comes about for the sake of business. You know when someone says, oh, it's not personal, it's just business. That's a contract. Uh, But a covenant comes about for the sake of love, It's not business, it's personal. That's why marriage is a great example of a covenant. It's not business, it's personal. It's a bond of love made more intimate and solid because it is legal. And the Lord's relationship with his people has always been a covenant. For the Lord, it isn't business, it's personal. And that's why even in this legal case, it's made with affectionate appeals. Do you see in verse three? The Lord reaches out to my people. And he says there, What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? It's as if the Lord is saying, Let's inspect my record, shall we? How have I wearied or worn you out? Why do you treat me like an ogre? What have I done? He says there at the end of verse three, Answer me, answer me. It's not a rhetorical question. And yet it is followed by a hollow silence because no good answer can be found. And as if to fill the silence, the Lord offers the evidence for how he's kept the covenant with his people. Verse four, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Far from burdening them, he removed the burden of slavery from them. He rescued them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea and led them through on dry ground. And then on the other side in the wilderness... He gave them good leaders. That's there at the end of verse four. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. He went with them through their years in the wilderness, guiding them all the way. And then as they stood on the borders of the promised land, able to see their long-awaited home, there was the problem of King Balak. See verse five? My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Balak was the king of Moab and he was threatened by the advance of Israel and so he um, tried to hire Balaam, who was, he was like a sorcerer for hire, and asked him to curse Israel to stop them entering the promised land. But the Lord stopped Balaam, stopped him from cursing them, and instead caused him to bless them three times. And then the final obstacle for God's people was the River Jordan, which marked the border of the promised land. Just like God got them through the Red Sea, he also got them through the River Jordan and into that promised land. That's the, verse, uh, that's the journey we see in verse 5. Remember your journey from Shittim, which is on one side of the Jordan, to Gilgal, which is on the other. And you see, he tells his people to remember these things so that, it's at the end of verse five, so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. All of these righteous acts are evidence for the court of a covenant kept by the Lord, Twice in these verses, he describes them as my people. Twice, he appeals to them to remember. And so verses three to five, in summary, say this, my people, my people, remember, remember the righteous acts of the Lord. It's a personal appeal to the affections of the people to respond in love to the Lord's covenant faithfulness to them, my people, my people, remember, remember the righteous acts of the Lord, Two and a half thousand years after Micah wrote those words, today we have many more righteous acts of the Lord to remember. Consider the grand sweep of the Christians' salvation history. We were lost in slavery to sin. God sent his son into the world as a baby boy, come to save us. He lived the perfect life, died on the the cross for our sins, was raised to life for our salvation. He called us, gave us faith, repentance, and new life justified and adopted us into his family he's made a home in us by his spirit and he's sustained us in the christian life so far but just running off a list like that isn't the sort of remembering the lord is calling his people into here think of a married couple who every year on their wedding anniversary sit down and open up the album of all the photos from their wedding day and start pointing them out and retelling the stories oh, do you remember that couple was late because they got stuck in traffic? Yeah, that's right. They walked in during the vows, didn't they? Oh, why, did I, why didn't you stop me doing my hair like that? It's awful. Well, I did try to tell you at the time, darling. And the, You know, you relive the memories and you go through, and that's a true story. Um, and um, and um, you go through and you relive these moments together. And that's the way we're to remember the righteous acts of the Lord, to regularly and lovingly relive them to take pleasure again in recalling them. Do you see in verse five, the Lord tells his people to remember these things so that you may know them. Now just think about that. He tells them to remember them so that they may know them. That might strike you as odd. We, uh, we think if I remember something, clearly that's proof that I already know it. But here, knowing comes as a result of of remembering. That's because there's a world of difference between knowing something with your head and knowing something with your heart. If we were to go and find some sorry soul who had never tasted honey before, we could tell them honey tastes sweet. Now, at that point, they would know what honey tastes like. Honey tastes sweet. But they don't really know what honey tastes like until they do what I did this morning, which is get a thick slice of hot toast and smother it with honey and... mm, taste it for themselves. You only really know what honey tastes like when you've tasted it. And there may be some here this morning who, who know very well the righteous acts of the Lord. Perhaps you've been coming to church for years. You can clearly recite what God has done for you through Jesus, but you've never personally delighted in those things for yourself, never tasted the sweetness of those truths. Or perhaps you've forgotten what that tastes like Don't settle for knowing those things with your head. Learn to taste them again, to delight in those truths. Regularly and lovingly relive them. It's in that sense that the Lord says in Micah chapter 6 My people, my people, remember, remember the righteous acts of the Lord. And it's why later in this service, when we receive communion, we will stop and slow down. We won't just say, Do you remember that Jesus died for you? Oh, good, great, let's sing the last song. We'll stop. We'll slow down, we'll come forward, we'll touch the bread and we'll taste the wine and we'll relive that story of the Last Supper and remember, remember what Jesus did for us in that most righteous act of the Lord when his body was broken for us and his blood shed on the cross. As we do that, we're presented with the evidence of the Lord's faithfulness, a covenant kept by the Lord. So if you're here this morning and if If you're being honest, do you feel like God is cold or frosty with you, like he doesn't really care very much? Hear his loving question in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? And the answer to that question, as we remember, remember the righteous acts of the Lord, should be sweet and warm. As we see that God has loved us in history and all he's done for us through the Lord Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us in this, while, Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember and know what God is like towards you, not cold, but faithful and loving. As we remember, we see a covenant kept by the Lord. But this is the response the Lord has received from Israel. Point two on your handout, a contract proposed by people. In verses six and seven, we hear the words of one of God's people who is trying to transform the covenant into a contract to treat a relationship that is personal as though it's just business. They're trying to repay God for his favor at the lowest possible cost. If you've ever been part of an auction on eBay, you'll uh, know this feeling well. You, you start the bidding low, and then you uh, look at your computer screen nervously, clicking refresh, hoping that the price doesn't go high. You want a bargain. And this is how the person is treating the Lord. He asks himself, verse six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? He starts low. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Then a little bit higher. With calves, a year old. Gosh, he thinks this God's demanding. So verse seven, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And from there, it begins to get a little bit absurd. How about... 10,000 rivers of oil. It's just being a bit silly. And finally, the bidding takes a darker twist as he suggests the human sacrifice. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This person wants to know how much they have to pay God in return for his favor. What's it gonna cost, Lord? In response to a covenant kept by the Lord is a contract proposed by people, that's what this person has done. He's taken a contract based on love and tried to, a covenant based on love, and tried to turn it into a contract based on business. It is outrageously insulting to respond to God's love like this because his relationship with his, his people isn't business, it's personal, it's a covenant. It would be like me on my silver wedding anniversary, sitting down for breakfast with my wife, opening my checkbook and saying, darling, thank you so much for the last 25 years. How much will that be? I think I'd get a slap. I think I'd deserve one. You can't monetize love. Nor should we try to reimburse God for his favor to us. To do so cheapens his love, the love that he's shown over many years, Let's never fall into thinking that God will approve of us because we've been baptized or come to church or give money or serve in various ministries, or do our quiet times or pray. If you think you can be contractual with God, you can't. you can't. He just won't allow it. Will thousands of rams cover it? 10,000 rivers of oil? No, no. With the whole realm of nature mind that were, an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul my life my all the only right response to love is love but God's people haven't loved him and he proves it in verse 8 he says there he has showed you O man what is good he's shown them what's good by giving them the law that's how to live a good life but when we hold up God's law against our lives it's obvious we haven't kept it And that's primarily why he's given it to us. He's shown us what's good so we can see we're not. That's why in verse eight, the Lord highlights those elements of the law that Israel in Micah's day were so clearly failing to keep. And what does the Lord require of you, it says? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God puts his finger on those things not to say, do these things and we'll be good on good terms, and nor to say uh, that that's all that the law's about, but because these are the ways that Micah's hearers were breaking the law. This is a key moment in the courtroom scene of Micah 6, the moment when the truth about God's people is made clear when the defendant is shown to be a lawbreaker. The people are exposed when God puts his finger right on the proof of their wrongdoing, To different people in a different day, God would have mentioned different things. If God were speaking individually to you or I, he would put his finger just on that area where we're failing to keep the law. Not to be cruel, but to show us that we can't keep the law. If you think you can, you're wrong. And why does that matter? Because the only right response to love is love. And Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So a failure to keep God's law is a failure to love God. It's a failure to respond to God's love with love. God shows us what is good so that when we hold it up against our lives, we'll see that we're not. How does he summarize the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Have I? Have you? No. Each of us has failed to respond to God's love with love. And as a result, the third point on the handout, we face a curse remembered by the judge. God's judgment against his people doesn't come from nowhere. He has urgently warned them over many years. Take a look at verse nine. There Micah says, Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod, And the one who appointed it, heed the rod. The rod was the Assyrian army who a few years before had surrounded Jerusalem and were poised to destroy them. And the one who appointed it is the Lord. Micah's telling the people, you remember when Assyria nearly destroyed us? That was God's warning. They were like the, the weapon in his hand that he was using to wake us up. And it tells us a lot about God that he issues a warning. Early in the morning on the 7th of December, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, wiping out an entire fleet. There was no warning. Why? Because they wanted to destroy. And they did so with devastating effect. You don't issue a warning if you want to destroy. You keep the element of surprise. But through the centuries, God God issued his people with warning after warning after warning. Why? Because he didn't want to destroy them. Because he wanted them to change and avert disaster. But all the warnings and even the near-miss of Assyria surrounding them, being poised to destroy them, could not change the hearts of these people. They pressed on towards their downfall. So what was God to do? Could he just forget the sins of his people or overlook them? Though we might forget evidence, God doesn't. Take a look at verse 10. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ether which is accursed? God has seen every backhand deal, every act of corruption. He hasn't forgotten a single one. And nor does he overlook these things. Verse 11, shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weight? He doesn't simply let people get away with it. And really, really, we wouldn't want any other kind of God. If someone mugged you and stole your purse or your wallet and, uh, and your phone and later was caught by the police, you wouldn't want a judge who said, oh, come on, let's just forget about it and let them go. You'd want justice and you'd be right to. Why would we expect God to be less committed to justice than we are? He is a just judge. He cares about wrongdoing and the suffering that it creates. Thankfully, God is a judge who remembers and so he issues this accusation in verses 10 to 12, that rather than act justly and love mercily and walk humbly with their God, his people have been corrupt and dishonest and violent and deceitful. That's the accusation. And verse 13 begins with the word, therefore, because here comes the sentence. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin, to ruin you because of your sins. To Micah's here is the sentence cast in the next two verses aren't just a a random collection of punishments. They were exactly the consequences God had warned them of if they broke their covenant with him. They'd been warned so many times. When God made his covenant with his people, there was the promise of abundant blessings if they were it, but curses if they didn't. These were the curses that had been warned would result. They're originally from Deuteronomy 28, if you want to read them later. Uh, But we have them here in verse 14. Have a look. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. This is a curse remembered by the judge who doesn't forget or overlook sin. The closing summary of this court case is there in verse 16. Accusation, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. They're the most evil of Israel's kings and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, this is the sentence. I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. So this is the evidence that we've seen in Micah 6. The Lord has kept his covenant with the people and the only right response to love is not to propose a contract but to love the Lord in return by keeping his law but we haven't. And so God, the just judge, who doesn't forget wrongdoing or acquit the guilty, has remembered the covenant curses. God's people face ruin, derision, and scorn as they bear his judgment. Court adjourned. That is the desperate place that Micah 6 leaves the people of God. Exposed and expecting judgment, a dramatic courtroom drama, yes, but withering if you're the one in the dock. Withering. Someone I used to know was recently sent to prison for a terrible crime. It was committed against a family who had welcomed him into their home when he needed somewhere to stay. I read in a news report that he wept in court as his crimes were described. Part of becoming a Christian is to admit that though God has shown us abundant love, we've treated him shamefully. And though he's lovingly warned us, we have wicked hearts that we cannot change. So we have to reach that place of utter despair, to see God's judgment hanging over us like a knife dangling by a thread, before we can know the sweet relief of Micah chapter 7 because there we will see news of a judge who delights to show mercy. He can't forget or overlook sin because he's just, but he can bear the curse on our behalf. And that's what he did on a cross on a hill outside a city some 2,000 years ago. The curse was remembered, but remembered on Jesus. His body was given over to be ruined on a cross and Pilate put above him there a sign in three languages to ensure that he would bear the scorn of all the nations. He bore the curse for you, for love. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. As we come up to communion in a few minutes' time, remember, remember the righteous acts of the Lord and know the joyful relief that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has borne your curse and loved you to death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father God, when we're convicted of our sin, help us to run to the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he has lifted our sin from our shoulders and borne it it on our behalf. As we remember his coming this Christmas, fill us with love for him who loved us in history and loves us still today. Amen. Amen.